0: options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye, a daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeeyecom slash research for more information.
1: Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit HedgeEye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to another live episode of Deep Dive. Uh, All things politics are on our minds Today, and I, as I've written for years, politics as, is economics and vice versa. Economics is politics. You can try and avoid one subject, but at some point you realize, especially in the post-pandemic environment, that they're completely intertwined. One cannot be spoken of without the other. I'm so pleased uh, this afternoon uh, to have both Neil Howe and J.T. Taylor with me, two brilliant minds in this space, you could not bring together uh, a better pool of talent. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon.
0: Great being here, Danielle.
2: Um, so I tweeted out right before we came on uh, the air that I was going to ask what nobody wanted to say out loud. I was going to ask the, the probing, pressing questions. Um, and, and I think that one of the reasons that that's always kind of plagued me is right in fact, Peggy Noonan won a Pulitzer Prize for the work that she did prior to Trump being elected president on the silent majority, on the Americans who have no voice in politics, and neither party really serves them. And there are two uh, there are two areas I'd like to delve into first. The first of which is uh, is our national debt. It's been a very curious last 12 months. You know, we've had the prior two administrations have been in a foot race to outspend one another. Your average working mother, single working mother of two the day the CARES Act was passed uh, was making somewhere around sixty one thousand nine hundred and fifty three dollars. We did the math and um, and we saw this mass exodus from the labor force of of low paying uh, professions. I've seen it play out with a lot of my friends trying to desperately get coverage for their parents as they age, as these boomers age to where they need assisted living. The nursing home industry is absolutely in a tatters right now. And yet we continue, continue to spend uh, money like we're drunken sailors. I'm going to throw a few figures out there. National debt ended 2019 at 22.7 trillion dollars. Uh, it's $34.2 trillion today, so about $11.5 trillion in the last four years, a 50% increase. As I argue, the current expansion is in its 175th month, because I don't believe that forcibly shutting the economy and reopening it with 50% of GDP in a very short period of time of fiscal spending constitutes what we would consider to be a recession, But my question to both of you, JT, we'll start with you, is how much longer can we go on like this? Is there a limit? Let's throw a chart up there to, to, to demonstrate, to illustrate how crazy things have gotten here in the last few years. This is no longer plain vanilla debt spending. How much longer can this go on, JT? And then, Neil, I'd ask the same question of you.
0: Yeah, Daniel, I mean, this is, this is the, the, the $64,000 question here in DC. It's a, just a matter of years. Uh, probably within the next decade, we're going to be from an, if you look at entitlements, Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, we're blowing the roof off, uh, on those two, uh, uh, entitlements, uh, uh, bar discretionary spending, right? So we're, the trajectory we're on right now is unsustainable. I think with the next five to 10 years, we're going to be saddled with so much debt. I mean, you, there are stats now that we're going to be paying much more interest on this $34 trillion that you mentioned than ever before. But, but the, the, what, where I'm stuck, Danielle and Neil, is that the leadership in Washington, whether it's the past administration, the current administration, this Congress, or even the next Congress, lacks the willpower to tackle these issues. Both parties... Both houses and the White House lack uh, the stomach to tackle these. And that's a big problem. With Congress is divided as it is right now. And I don't believe if my predictions or our predictions hold out, it's going to get any better in 2024, 2025 when they take issue. By the way, the very first, very first issue out of the gate, Danielle, in 2025 is raising the debt ceiling Mm again. So we're going to be back at this. In 2025, this debate scored—you know, there are people in both parties, by the way. I don't mean to paint both parties with the same brush. There are Republicans and a few Democrats out there who want to tackle the debt, who want to establish— I mean, there's always this talk of establishing a debt or deficit commission. You've got to do it with teeth. You just can't say that we have a debt problem, right? We have a debt problem, all right? Here's what we need to do about it. That's what I'm hoping— this current speaker does. He's talked about a debt commission. Now, that kind of fell by the wayside with the current budget battle. Uh, and it looks as if there are a few folks in the Senate that want to revive, on, on in both parties, that want to revive some sort of debt commission. But until, the, the Amer- in my opinion, until the American people start pressuring their legislators, their elected officials, the, these folks aren't going to budge.
2: Um, so, so, Neil, jump in here. Uh, You know, when I flashed up that chart, I mean, if I was to switch the names between Trump and Biden, you might not be able to tell the difference. Uh, This is both of them. And theoretically, if Trump comes in, those tax cuts, they're not going anywhere.
3: Danielle, I I hate to say this, but I've been looking at this issue my entire career. This goes back decades. It was Joe Califano back in the mid 70s who first talked about the unaffordability of the graying of America. This is when HHS was called the E.G.W. It <laughs> was kind of like antediluvian era. Um, I wrote a I wrote a book with Pete Peterson in the late 1980s called On Borrowed Time, which is all on the growth of entitlements and how unaffordable it was. And but it's gotten worse. Uh, I I uh, launched into Trump. I think this was in uh, fiscal year uh, uh, 2019. When he had a, he ran a deficit. Uh, he approved it. Any of that was great, of nearly five percent of GDP, uh, non-recession, peacetime deficit. That's the, been the largest in our history, right? That we had had that, and now uh, it's up, you know, over eight percent in this last year. With with Biden, it's getting worse. Now, my analysis is is that right now we have an electorate with very little trust, uh, and both parties are trying to get. A decisive majority To sort of change history So there's this sense of We got to do everything To win first Right I think that's the mentality And that means Opening up the sluice gate In benefits No one's going to try To take away You know One of the few things That people You know The ordinary people Think that have the going For them right Which is they still get Obamacare They still get Medicaid They still get Medicare They still get uh, Social Security Uh in, in reality, what I think is that these these issues will not be addressed until there is a crisis, um, and uh, it will be a combination of the, the Fed not being able to control uh, inflation anymore with extreme demands by the government for new resources, which are completely unaffordable in the current fiscal, you know, uh, uh, kind of inherited fiscal commitments. Together, perhaps, with an exchange rate crisis, right, as, as uh, uh, investors around the world lose faith in our, in our ability to pay back. Uh, one particular document, uh, Danielle, I want to point out to all viewers, and this is issued roughly every year. Uh, the CBO is going to come out with it again in, in June or July, I think. And that is a 30-year projection. Uh, that's the 30-year projection of the economy and the fiscal balance. That goes completely off the charts, even assuming the very low real interest rates that they have traditionally assumed on the 10 year once those interest rates gets adjusted back to where they are now, which is, you know, real interest rates up around two percent, uh, it's gonna it's gonna cause shockwaves in Congress. It's either gonna happen this summer or it will happen in the next year, but those alone may simply force Congress. We may have a system if the, you know, if If the long-awaited recession or, uh, you know, the vibe session turns into a real recession arrives, we may be in the uh, position where the Fed can't do much, but fiscal policy has to contract at the same time anyway due to the impending debt problem. Everyone in Congress says, yes, we know it has to be handled. We know we can't wait longer. But of course, politically, their hands are tied now. They don't think they can do it and remain in office at the moment.
2: Um. JT, let me hop real quick to a- another elephant in the room. Do you think the electorate is aware? Uh, you know, Trump used FEMA to extend unemployment benefits. He used the CDC to extend the rental eviction mor- moratorium. Uh, Biden has absolutely flaunted, flaunted the uh, the Supreme Court's ruling on. On, on, on paying back student debt by executive ordering bits and pieces, dribs and drabs, billions here, billions there. Do you think the electorate is aware of how much spending is occurring that's not legislated?
0: No, I don't. Uh, I think you probably have elements of the electorate that are aware, but by and large, I don't think they have any idea. I will say, though, on the student loan front, that has hit a particular nerve. So you you do have folks that that and if you raise that more awareness on issues like student loans and what Biden has done since the Supreme Court uh, tossed that aside, to, uh, knocked that down, I think people become agitated. So there is some awareness out there, Danielle. Nowhere, and it by the way, it's growing. And I think student debt, the student debt issue, is just one small uh, portion of it. I do believe it's growing. I do believe that with folks like us. Continuing to uh, uh, ride herd on the issue will help, but it, it it should become it should become a campaign issue. By the way, both the, the 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 titular heads of the party right now refuse to talk about the debt or the deficit. Absolutely refuse it. It has to be forced from the ground up. There has to be a groundswell. And Neil said we've got this issue potentially coming forward in this Congress. I think you'll start to see more of it on the campaign trail. I think you'll see it in House races and Senate races. I don't know that the presidential candidates are going to even address it.
2: So let's let's go to the really, really, really big elephant right now, Um, because a, a certain female on the campaign trail has brought up the issue of the malfeasance, and she has brought out numbers, and she's shown that she's done her homework. So the other big, big, big elephant in the room is somebody who takes two-thirds of the independent vote in one state. Uh, she took 41 of, percent um, of the overall vote, uh, with, with Trump taking obviously more than that and the balance. My question is this. Is it normal to see two states go by? And given the loud voice of the independents in the state of New Hampshire, is it normal to see two states come and go and a political party throw the potential other opponent who's never been debated to the wolves and say, fait accompli, we're finished?
4: Robert McCrordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro Investing Research Products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to Hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode.
0: I personally don't believe so. This is unprecedented, by the way. And we're not even typically, you know, by uh, super, Tuesday, super Tuesday, March 5th, or maybe even March 12th. I do believe it's unprecedented. Uh, And I do think it's a little premature, but if New Hampshire was very favorable, the New Hampshire electorate with independents voting and some Democrats, probably the most favorable Nikki Haley is going to have it. In fact, I think she's struggling uh, by well into double digits in in South Carolina, probably somewhere. Neil probably has this number off the top of his head, but she's probably in the mid 20s. Uh, from a point percentage behind Trump right now in her home state, and runs the risk of being embarrassed, frankly. But it is early, and she is finally bringing up issues. Right? I mean, the issues haven't really been discussed much uh, at that level, and she's, you know, she's trying to get Trump to do a one-on-one debate. I suspect that if she's embarrassed or it looks like she's going to be embarrassed in South Carolina, she may drop. Everyone says they're going to stay in as long as possible, but I know Neil will agree historically. It's Super early, super premature, and uh, and just as they're starting to talk about issues, she may be out of the race.
2: This is kind of like Al Gore, Neil.
3: Yeah, Danielle. The I, I think, first of all, I want to agree with, with JT that the New Hampshire independent vote was the absolute optimal. They tend to be uh, uh, kind of relatively blue zone, they're educated, they're relatively urban, they're professional. I mean, they're everything that a Nikki Haley could want in an available you know, voting, you know, electorate in the middle. Um, uh, I will say, though, that uh, and, you know, I I could throw this back a while. Maybe JT can answer. It's also unusual that we're down to only two candidates uh, with one with such a large lead over the other. Uh, It's kind of I I do understand people frustrated on the Nikki Haley side uh, with the fact that some people want to shut it down. On the other hand, uh, and maybe JT, you could outline it. What would be a successful path forward, you know, realistically, for Nikki Haley, given that there's no more opposition out there to amalgamate. You know what I mean? Yep. So, so now I, I think one option is uh, wait to see what happens with all the the trials and everything else. Uh, maybe even mortality itself. God knows what could happen over the next year. So that that is an option. But I I will emphasize one other thing that we have been talking about. There is a war right now, a civil war within the Republican Party to redefine the party. And right now, uh, one of the reasons why Trump supporters, the MAGA you know, side, is so uh, enlivened against Nikki Haley is because of all the donors, right? And, uh, and, you know, JT can speak to this, right? But the whole idea is now is that Nikki Haley is getting, and as you know, this came up with the uh, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy when he attacked Nikki Haley and this this has come up with a number of attacks on Nikki Haley she's getting all these uh, rich donors and for better or for worse uh, uh, whether this is true or not JT this is the image right that she's being supported by all these rich people. Trump is a candidate of the of the downtrodden the populist every man and every woman and that uh, this is a war worth fighting over. I'd be interested, JT, in 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 your take on that. That's certainly what uh, the Trump side wants this to be portrayed as. Is that is that not right?
0: Yeah, it is. I mean, if this is if if she's really going to fight to the end, right? If she has to decide whether or not she is going to be the anti-Trump in a pro-Trump party, right? And whether or not that helps her with her if she chooses to run again in twenty twenty eight. If this is her last stand then she's likely finished. But maybe she is one of the few principal folks bo- on both sides that's willing to take that stand, that's willing to talk about the issues that Danielle mentioned. One, two, there's also a shot. I think the donor from the donor side, I think some of these folks are going to continue to stay on the sidelines, wait to see what happens in South Carolina. Again, much much more difficult terrain in South Carolina than in New Hampshire, as we just said. But the, she's got to decide whether or not she waits to see what happens with the Trump, a, a potential Trump conviction. Uh, she's got to wait to see what happens with, frankly, this third party, uh, which I suspect we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not there's a third party uh, component to this, no labels or some someone else out there, or whether she wants to amass delegates staying in beyond South Carolina, amassing delegates along the way to have some leverage at the convention. A lot can happen between now in the, uh, the convention in July of this year, and whether or not she takes that leverage and tries to negotiate with Trump, the master negotiator, or she threatens to go on a no-label sick. I mean, there, she has a couple of options. She's not limited uh, as to what her future is. I do think, though, that she runs the risk of being, as I said, the anti-Trump candidate in a very, very pro-Trump. That, that's program. the
3: problem. In other well, words, yeah. that she, am- she amasses animosity. Among Republicans, faster than she am, uh masses delegates, yeah, and and that's the real issue. I mean, already no one's mentioning her as a BP candidate. I don't really talk about you know no. Trump's potential BPs. but but you know that's impossible now because I think of all that. You know, there are other candidates out there. Right?
2: Now, so uh, so um, let, let let's stay on the subject of civil war within the GOP for just a minute. Um, former editor of the Wall Street Journal, now he is one of their senior writers, Gerard Baker happens to be a friend of mine. He had a column out in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal here in the last 24 hours, and he relayed an anecdote, a conversation that Winston Churchill had had on a train talking up a woman. And I'm gonna read that right now and then ask for both of your reactions. So he and a woman, again, were speaking on, on, on a train. Winston Churchill says, to her, tell me, my dear, if I offered you a million pounds, would you sleep with me? Uh, The woman was taken aback, but pondered for a moment and said, well, you are a very old man, sir, but obviously distinguished. I would have to think about it. So Winston Churchill says, while you're thinking, let me ask you another question. Would you sleep with me if if I gave you one pound? To this, she replies, Mr. Churchill, she responds indignantly, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And he replies, Miss... We've established what kind of a woman you are. Now we're merely negotiating the price. So this anecdote was shared in the context of an article about individuals within the Republican Party who Trump has belittled, name called, degraded, called, insulted six ways to Sunday, who are now groveling at his feet, effectively apologizing. I was young. I needed the money. Why is there so little accountability in the Republican Party? Why? I'm just going to ask it out loud. Why is there such fear within the party of Donald Trump when so many, as you saw, as we've seen in one poll after another, when so many Americans wouldn't vote for him or Biden?
4: Hi, Robert McGrody here. Director of Subscriber Development at EdgeEye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager-in-chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40-plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high-conviction, long and short investing ideas. You will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe and tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode.
3: You want to take that on first, JT? Uh, Yeah, I mean...
2: Uh, I mean, neither of you probably wants to answer the question, but why is it how it it, is? is? They've all got nicknames and they're all saying sorry
0: it's fear. i mean when you think about then and I know Neil has great stats on this but when you look at the size of his uh, of the base uh, over the you know since 2015 2016 it is formidable you know there's talk that it, it, trump has a very um um uh uh, uh high ceiling and uh, i'm sorry that trump has a very very high floor and a very low ceiling right that high floor is what's carrying them to each and every passing uh, election. And by the way, this is the high floor is what's motivating the base voters in these congressional districts as well. So there is a, an element of fear within the Republican Party, in my opinion, of retribution. And uh, you know, that, that's what it boils down to. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know what else there is. If from an issue standpoint, if you go back to the first term, you, you'll hear a lot of folks say, we do agree with Trump on the issues. We don't agree with his approach. But he was successful in tax policy and a number of other things. Uh, but when you look at the numbers uh, of his base, of the Republican Party, they're the ones that turned out. They're the ones that turn out in the primaries, and they're the ones that it's a fuel that's sort sure, of it's his rocket fuel that's that's propelling him forward time and again. It's not the it's not the, uh, the vast majority of the party, but right now it's just enough to get him over the finish line.
2: So politics, effectively politics by extortion, Neil.
0: And power. I mean, this is the raw thing. It's not it's not exclusive to the Republicans, by the way. Right. Democrat. But they're all craven uh, by uh, the the drive to hold onto power.
3: Neil, I, I think you have to start with this basic fact, and that is the core of the MAGA movement. Uh, and this is the mobilizable part of the Republican Party that may not come out in an ordinary election. They won't come out, maybe, if Nikki Haley runs. Right. That's Trump's uh, uh uh, kind of Trump's trump card so to speak in other words everyone knows that when Trump runs he mobilizes a certain sector of America these are lower income less educated Americans right in places like where I live uh and they come out for him they will not come out for an ordinary Republican and I think what you have to remember is for this part of America they fear they're losing the America they knew all right they fear that this is a crisis point and they don't mind in fact they endorse having a pretty authoritarian leader a strong man right who uh, who doesn't brook much opposition who will cut corners who will do whatever it takes to take command of an America they fear that they are losing forever um and that is a strong dynamic and I think on top of that is the fact and I, I think JT alluded to this is that partly because of the way we've been changing the primary rules. I think Trump just has it all sewn up. There's so many states now where when he wins, just even a slight majority, it's winner take all. Isn't that right, JT? They've changed the rules along the way. And they, they no longer have runoff elections. I mean, everything has been jiggered now so that Trump really is going to roll right when, he, when he, you're on particularly it. Particularly on Super Tuesday. Plus, plus, Trump is now doing pretty well in national polls. I mean, we, you know, I've I've this discussed at length the the uh the Siena College New York Times poll that came out about a month ago. That was a blockbuster, right? I mean that really woke up the Democrats in Washington. It showed Trump winning five out of the six uh battleground states over um over uh uh, uh Joe Biden. Uh not only that it showed and this is something I actually talked about in in um you know my my most recent piece uh on demography unplugged Uh, where he's doing best is among young people. There's a huge shift among millennials. These are under 40 voters, uh, underage 40 voters who are no longer, it's not that they're necessarily pro-Trump, but they're no longer pro-Biden. And that would be huge because if Trump can get that, it's easy to see how he can easily come in first uh, in the election in 2024. I don't know. What do you think, uh, JT? I, I think it's the fact that that the the primary roles now are paving the way for him, that polls see can be Biden and that you have this um, this this militant, almost apocalyptic core on the Trump side that say anything Trump wants to do is good. And if it's drastic, that's OK, because that's where America is right now.
2: So, um, JT, I'm going to interrupt for just a second, yeah. um, because there's there's a flip side of this coin that came out in a recent Gallup poll, if we could, Eric, if we could put that second chart up, uh, the biggest takeaway, the, the, what's gotten the most press is that yellow line. And that's a record number of of, of voters who identify as independents, not necessarily, not necessarily, uh, you know, card carrying, but in the fine print of this fresh Gallup poll said very, very quietly is the, the decline to 27% who identify as Democrats is the lowest on record. JT, do you think that there are Americans out there who are never Biden?
0: I do. I mean, just go back to New Hampshire and exit polling in New Hampshire. There there, there are plenty, I think it's probably closer to the mid-20s, Republicans. Exit polls in New Hampshire show the low 20s, 22%. Of Republicans that voted in New Hampshire would not vote for Trump uh, in a general election. Biden is about 12 or 13 percent coming out of New uh, out of New Hampshire as well. So Biden's numbers are in double digits. They're not insignificant, by the way. So I do believe that there are a number of, of independents and, and 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 of course Democrats that won't for vote vote for Biden. Remember, Trump has the high floor, low ceiling. Biden has the low floor, high ceiling. I think that's why there's all this panic right now. Independents, the way they're breaking, and Neil, love to hear what you have to say on this, but independents right now, when you look at New Hampshire and even Iowa to an extent, likely won't vote for Trump, right? But it doesn't mean they're going to vote for Biden. You know, the biggest scare here, the biggest scare here is a third party emerges out of this, hence that big number that Danielle, Gallup, that Danielle just popped up. If there's a the third-party threat here, uh, you know, the, the, I think the $64,000 question between now and the conventions is who, who does that damage the most?
3: Yeah, uh, just to interject here, at, at two points on this. Uh, one is is that be careful in looking at independents, and you, you, you especially see this among young people. Young people almost never identify with a party, but increasingly larger shares of them identify as either conservative or progressive. And what a lot of pollsters now do is they don't pay so much attention to party membership. They look at Democratic or Republican leaning, because it turns out that a lot of these independents very predictably vote for one party or the other. So just that people don't want to say that they are actually belong to a party. I mean, who wants to actually sully themselves with an actual membership? And it's utterly corrupt politics today doesn't mean that you don't have a clear red zone, blue zone preference. Um, I totally agree with JT. This third party is either going to amount to a lot or nothing, you know, depending on whether it can gain critical mass. Uh, and maybe, JT, I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about about no labels, uh, how successful they are. Um, some of these candidates are obviously having trouble Uh, Obviously, the the Democrats and the Republicans as parties in every state are fighting furiously to prevent these 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 parties from actually, you know, uh, putting their names on the ballots. So, you know, you got the you got the you know, the Cornell West and the and the and the Kennedys and all these people and and Marianne Williamson and all the rest. But the big the the big deal with the most money is no labels. Who are they going to put on the top of their ticket? And how many states will they be uh, will they be able to put their candidate on? And by the way, are they even going to decide? Right. I mean, they have constantly announced if we don't feel like we can win the election, we're not going to run anybody. Is that right?
0: That's right. And I think they're going to make an announcement apparently by the springtime, guys. And so but as I understand it, they're about to qualify for ballots in 13 states, including Arizona, Nevada and North Carolina. Think about those three states and think about the importance those three states made uh, were in the, in that past election. So I think we'll know by the springtime whether or not they're going to have uh, enough juice uh, 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 to qualify for more ballots in 13 states. By the way, I would not dismiss those 13 states. Remember, this is the Electoral College. This is not a popular vote. And then secondly, if from a candidate standpoint, I mean, we're going to hear everybody and anybody under the sun from Chris Christie, to even Nikki Haley, I mean, there. there, there was a, I was in a, uh, a meeting last week where she doesn't succeed uh, uh, as a Republican and, 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 and she doesn't retain her viability in the Republican Party. Um, as I said, she's uh, anti-Trump in a pro-Trump party that's going to continue to be tr- pro-tr- pro-Trump even after this election. Um, does she pivot and potentially uh, look at no labels? So I think they're looking at a number of candidates right now I, I do think that Manchin is going to factor into
2: uh, a unity ticket, regardless. Uh, that, that, was, that was my next question. That was my next question to both of you is we see him. He pops up. We know that, that he's certainly got broad-based appeal. Uh, and and, and you, you would think to yourself, why doesn't somebody just put Joe Manchin and Nikki Haley on a ticket and call it a day?
3: That would be formidable. JT, but JT, what I want to know is from you, whether it's—look— it's clearly the Democrats who fear this third candidate more than Republicans, and with good reason, right? Because the Republicans are going to at this, just tweedle them, tweedle thee. Two people who want to who want to run the, the the deep state, you know, choose one of them or the other. These are the people that are on the take. They get the big, you know, they take all the people the university degrees. They run this thing that we ate. Choose one or the other of them, right? I and I think the Democrats know that that's how people are going to see it. And I particularly, if they put a a, a Democrat, they put even a, a you know Joe Manchin on the top, um, uh, and certainly a Kennedy. I mean, you know, Kennedy's going to be running on his own, obviously. But but the question is, doesn't this really work to Trump's advantage? We could have absolutely. We could have an 1860 election. Lincoln gets elected with 40 percent of the vote, and how, that
0: really hurts a uh, third party right now. Again, there's. a I hadn't really thought through if it's a, 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 um, a Haley-Mansion ticket, but um, I definitely think it hurts Biden much more than it hurts Trump right now. Again, we'll see what happens and who they pick at the end of the day. But if it were, you know, think about where uh, suburban women would go right now with Haley on the ticket. Maybe not Mansion, but with Haley on the ticket. Again, pretty unlikely, but you can't rule it out. Uh, that would be a formidable ticket. You know what? I think historically, Neil. I don't think any independent candidate got more than a single digits in recent memory. I think I think we would see a serious effort with a credible, or viable uh, Republican along running along with with Manchin. And then secondly, Danielle, bringing this full circle, I think one of the things Manchin does to the debt deficit debate, it does bring that front and center. That is his baby. I think he would uh, he would raise awareness this election year. So I don't I see nothing I th- I see Manchin as a boon for the three of us who really know that something has to be done to address uh, uh the, and you know he's behind along with a couple of Republicans uh, uh, at least on the Senate side trying to bring this to the fore from a commission standpoint. So he would be this would be his premier issue, which
2: I think would be great for America. Like well so, so yeah. let, let, let's stay on well, money for a second. raising awareness of the debt. Right yeah. right. Let, 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 let's stay on money for a second because there is um there, there's a certain cohort of younger people out there who are walking away from their credit card debt. They're quote unquote boycotting their student loans. Uh they're 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 taking advantage of buy now pay later knowing they're going to buy now but not pay later. Where where did this mindset come from that a contractual obligation is not that? What is it about sticking it to the boomers that not and I'm not talking about a small faction of young people here. I'm talking about quite a few people who would, would vote to kind of just take it easy.
1: Hi, I'm Keith McCollum, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, The Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data-driven.
5: So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at nine a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com slash research to subscribe.
3: Well, I mean, if if you think that boomers are the problem, right? If they if they're taking half of the budget, uh, you might just say, Well, wait a minute, what's going on here? I didn't vote for this. I wasn't around when the 1983 Greenspan Commission solved, quote unquote, Social Security. You, you know what I mean? They weren't part of any of these decisions. I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it. I don't think it's ever good to say that you should not follow your, your contributions. And, and let me just add here uh, um, uh, that I do think that the college debt issue is a loser overall for Biden. Not based on generational uh, the generational dynamic, which I actually think uh, I'm sympathetic to, but rather because of the class dynamic, it looks terrible for the Democrats. In other words, you're basically saying we're going to tax all of you know all these Americans, most Americans who haven't have not gone to college and who never will go to college, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, basically pay back the debt for all these people who are going to college, right? And, and particularly the people who have the most debt per capita who go to these you know, fancy professional schools to get their M.A.s and, and and, and uh, you know, and, uh, 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 business degrees and, and, and law degrees. So I, I just think it's a bad issue from a class perspective uh, for Biden. Uh, but but uh, but gosh, uh, uh, Danielle, I I, I I do agree that in the current climate where everyone feels that the system is broken, Uh, It's this attitude that we can break rules now, whether it's immigration or anything else, no rules or if it's good, this rule this environment, because sooner or later there will be rules again. But I'm going to be on the other side. You know what I mean? When the rules suddenly apply again, I'll I'll be I'll be I'll be safe.
2: So um, let's stay on this subject from the but from the perspective of the opposite side of the societal spectrum, if you will. Uh, for some time now, uh, Americans have been told that inflation is a figment of their collective imagination. Now, the, the month of December, excuse me, the month of January started off with a, a big announcement out of city that they were going to be laying off 20,000. All right, fine. Let the bankers go. They've already got more money than they could possibly ever use. Today, UPS announces that it's laying off 12,000. We're at nearly 100,000 job cuts. In the month of January alone, it has been an earnings season to remember with one CEO after another doing what they can to bolster their bottom line and keep their shareholders happy by cutting costs. How do you think Americans who've been told that there's no inflation are going to be are going to feel when they're also told that it's the strongest job market in the history of mankind?
3: Yeah. yeah, look.
2: Uh, sorry, uh, either of you jump in.
3: Danielle, we we put out uh, demography. We put out all about the indicators every month. And, uh, you know, we have a set of traffic lights, you know, long-term negatives, medium-term negatives, short-term negatives. Right now, the long-term and medium-term are all red or yellow. The ones that still are positive, you know, green, are the short shortest term. Those are the employment indicators. That is rapidly decelerating right now. Right. Every indicator we have, particularly marginal employment, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, young people, young men and women, uh, 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 foreign born, the disabled. I mean, we go down a long list, right? Temp workers, overtime hours, all that kind of stuff. That's decelerating the most. That's what we see first to go. I believe you're right. I believe right now we are beginning to see the inflection point in employment. And uh, that's the next. Big news that we're going to have. I, I, I'm glad to hear you uh, talk about those layoffs.
2: Um, so there's something else to consider, then, right? Because in late 2019, uh, as my mentor Lacey Hunt would would tell me, every time the the global trade has been negative for an entire calendar year, the U.S. economy is, has slipped into recession. The uh, the U.S. Econ- global trade was negative for all of 2019. Global trade is negative right now. But in 2019, we had the pandemic about to sweep on shore and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars spent in a very short period of time starting in March of 2020 with the CARES Act. Right now, as both of you acknowledge, we're just trying to keep the lights on in the government. Oh, yeah. Every few months or so, we just come to another continuing resolution. We're we're just keeping the lights on. What a, What difference will it make? If there's not major legislation, social legislation, until say April of 2025, what difference would recession on election day make? JTL, go to you first.
0: I mean, that's huge. I, it's, I, you're you're you know you're going to have, depending on whoever wins the White House, you're still going to have a Congress that is. But think about this: this past year in 2023. Kamala Harris, in a a, a divided Senate, broke more ties uh, than any other vice president in history, I think in in almost 200 years, 33 or 34 ties. The current Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker Johnson, has a two-seat majority. And on some days, it's a a one-seat majority, as we're going to find out soon. So I don't know how we get into the spring of 2025. And we're we're, we're talking about, at least in the House, uh, uh, an election over twenty-three seats out of four hundred and thirty-five uh, uh, congressional districts. Only twenty-three seats will be in play. Danielle Neil knows this as well. I don't know. There's not going to be a unless there's a massive wave election, as I said earlier. There's not going to be much. The, the 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 House may go from Republican to Democrat by a handful of votes, and the Senate may go from Democrat to Republican by a handful of votes. But we're going to be generally stuck with the same type of makeup the same type of congress that we currently have i can't imagine that they're going to be able to pass anything in the spring of 2025 especially with the debt ceiling uh first out of the gate uh unless there's a a major major crisis and i don't even think that would bring the parties together well you know it doesn't have to bring the parties together there's a major major
3: crisis and one party has you know both both houses you're right both houses of congress uh they'll just you know they'll, they'll claim prerogative you know to act i mean they'll 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 suspend the uh the, the 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 filibuster rule i mean they'll just they'll railroad stuff through i i think that's an extreme case obviously look uh if if there is a recession going into to uh this november uh, doesn't that make it harder for biden to pull this out JT, I mean, look, look how badly he's doing in the polls, and right now
0: we got an in play. Absolutely. Sodomy is still number one coming out of Iowa and coming out of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. I don't care how you look at the results. The economy
2: is still... T- t- economy is t- stupid, right? It's the economy stupid. Yeah. Yep. And, and actually, uh, you know, it, w- w- when you're thinking about um, true brass tacks economics 101 and things that we learn in school are by their very definition bad like tariffs, I mean, my God, you, you've got you, you, you've got the U.S. steel industry so on its knees that you've got a foreign company coming in and buying U.S. steel. Uh, I, I mean, the robber barons are spinning in their graves. And yet we're pondering a new trade war under Trump and under Biden, nothing has happened with these tariffs. Yep. And yet we're talking about ratcheting this war up one more notch, or just having it be the same?
0: He hasn't changed uh, the Trump tariffs whatsoever. I think you're going to see a minor change here in, within the next month, uh, maybe with EVs and other products in the supply chain. Uh, but he, had, I believe they're going to generally keep uh, the tariffs uh, that, that that Trump put on the economy back in, in 2017, number one. Number two, Trump he's already come out saying that he's going to put a 10% universal tariff uh, out there, uh, and then also look to revoke uh, um, uh, permanent trade status with China, which could raise uh, uh, terrorists anywhere between 20 and 60 percent, 6 to 0 percent, if PNTR is revoked. In fact, that is, Daniel, that's going to be a hot debate this summer, maybe even this spring on Capitol Hill. Trump is also pushing, there's a select committee on China in the House, He is also pushing on his Republican allies in Congress to bring up PNTR, revoking PNTR status for China. This is preferred trade status for China uh, before the election. You take that away, it's a congressional vote. Those tariffs go up by 20 to 60 percent.
3: Yeah, think about uh, what's this going to do to the China's economy? Uh, they're flat on their back now. The real estate sector is imploding. They've gotten deflation, particularly yep. in the manufactured products. The only thing that that uh, Xi Jinping is doing now is uh, is just expanding the manufacturing and industrial sector to export more. It's called a miserating growth, you know, by trade economists. You just flood the world with, you know, whatever they're now exporting, uh, lithium batteries and, and solar panels and, and EV cars. But the point is, is that, Biden has done plenty to not only keep the Trump tariffs but to put on all the new buy american provisions right on all the new legislation he put through he suddenly put a huge tariff wall which probably is going to get Europe to do something similar otherwise all the all the the the, the flooding right I, I mean all the dumping goes in their direction yep china is going to be in a very very hard place because right now Uh, This is their only way is to export uh, manufacturing and basic industrial, uh, you know, kind of capital goods uh, and get out of the getting out of their current funk that way.
0: Um, uh, And Trump Trump will wield the tariff cudgel throughout 2024. I promise you. Oh,
3: yeah, he will. And if he and if he gets it, he'll be selective, right? If you exactly spend right. uh, over on uh, NATO or something like that, we'll lower a little bit for you. In other words, he's going to be the master organist. You know, he will be saying, oh, yeah, you get a little favor because you please me. That's true. You're right.
2: Oh, so both of what you're describing, both of what you're describing, uh, it hurts countries that are dependent upon trade with China, such as Germany, that's already on its knees and in recession. All of Europe is going into recession. Uh, you're gonna end up hurting South South America as well, their economies. They're going to end up being collateral damage to what you're describing. And at some point we're talking about an increasingly isolationist United States that's running out of allies. So let's take this one step further because Neil, you've always said it's a toss-up. Are we gonna have a world war first? Or a civil war first? You know, flip a coin. And, and I realize I'm not trying to be flippant about such a, a a heavy subject. But if we're increasingly isolationist, doesn't that pose political and economic risk to the country?
3: Um. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Danielle, to kind of two-part answer to your question, the, the first part about this increasing, uh, you know, uh, backing away from globalization in terms of trade, uh, that ship left the left the harbor a long time ago. Uh, we peaked uh, in international trade as a share of global product uh, back in 2008. So the entire last uh, 15 years, right? We have been on a declining trend. This is simply speeding it up, right? So this is something that the world
2: is getting familiar with. Uh, and Neil, what typically happens historically? At the well, end all, game, we at we the end of these Smoot cycles. Ollie, right? <laughs> Sorry, we all
3: remember Smoot-Holly, the Smoot-Holly tariffs.
2: But that, uh, but this is what I'm getting at, Neil.
3: That that was a forerunner, right? I mean, that was just on the on the eve of, of the crash and and the Great Recession. So these great crises typically do come in eras of increasing isolation. Look, we're re- reliving the '30s, uh, right? As I have argued at like great length, even a book length. Uh, <laughs> we, we are reliving the 30s, Danielle. And and, um, uh, and and I see this in almost every sphere of, of, of geopolitics, social life, and politics. One thing that happened during the 30s, by the way, is not only was there extreme isolationism and we didn't want anything to do with any entangling alliances around the world, uh, even after Poland had been invaded, America did not want, you know, it was strictly cash and carry in terms of arms. I mean, we, we, the last thing we wanted to do was to go into another foreign war. Uh, and as as we know, the two parties at that time, we had rabid uh, 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 kind of ideological polarization in America. You either thought that the future of America was going to be communist or fascist, and, and we had a great recession that would, uh, I should say, Great Depression, uh, which which never seemed to end. So it looked like liberal democracy was dead. There was an extreme mood in America at that time. And what you saw, and this is kind of answer your question, Danielle, is that these two issues of, of domestic gridlock and polarization and increasingly a dangerous situation around the world fed each other, right? Our very inaction, our very failure to come to any consensus about how to act uh, encouraged uh, 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 autocrats all around the world. Yeah, take Manchuria and Mussolini, take Ethiopia. We're not going to lift a finger because we don't care. We officially don't care, right? And and no one else would around the world either. There was a complete divergence of interests in what we would today call the free world of the democratic world. But that's what you see uh, kind of today. Uh, take a look at Ukraine. Uh, we haven't talked about Ukraine. Maybe JT... You have a new word about what's happening with that, but I mean, this is this is what we're talking about, right? It's sort of like a, a, a get out of jail free card. It's sort of like you know, come come get us, right? So uh, look at Iran, look at look at uh, Biden's response to Iran, you know, telegraphing seemingly months in advance. Well, if you really keep attacking us, maybe we'll create uh, yes, a task force to see
2: how we might. So, uh, actually, Neil, that, that's a rabbit hole. We, we've, we've only got about 10 minutes left. I'm actually going to have JT go to the other flip side of the coin. So it is November the 6th. It is the day after Election Day. We've seen a tight election. Will there be one side or another that does not accept the outcome? Can you see that and can you see it possibly happening on both sides of the ticket
0: i can't i do I can and i do I, th- that fear is palpable um and I, you, know, you can't underestimate it right now the electorate uh but I, I believe probably a little more so if if um trump is defeated uh that you will see uh, uh probably uh, uh, january 6 2021 on steroids. Uh, maybe not attacking Congress, but I do think that uh, the, there will be, uh, I don't know if it's a rebellion, but the outcry would be uh, um, pretty sustainable, pretty sustained, sustainable, uh, vocal, um, and I, I don't know when it ends. I do think less so if Biden is reelected, um, but I, it, it, I would say, by the way, I would say civil war over a world war. Uh, because of this very issue I I think going by the way we have 10 more months of this and they haven't even gotten started Danielle I mean we've 10 more months of these two firing at each other and I just think it's going to I think the anger uh, with both of them is just going to increase over the next nine months building up to November 6th November 7th and I would not underestimate what happens after that not to sound too doomsday but um Again, we're just at the very beginning. In fact, Biden just started using the Trump word within the, the big thing here within the Democrats. He just started using the Trump word uh, over the past two weeks. Uh, but it is going to get ugly uh, and uh, it's going to get ugly in probably the longest presidential cycle um, that we've ever seen.
2: So, uh, uh, Neil, I'm going to I'm going to switch over to a Demography Unplugged for a minute. I'm going to put my mom hat on. I have three teenage boys. I have one teenage girl. Uh, I make them stand for the flag. I make them open the door for women. Um, And that's because I've raised them right. And I won't let her walk through a door that's not opened for her. I think my daughter might be the exception in society today. Can you talk a little bit about youth in America and how differently it is perceived by young men and young women.
3: Yeah, we we just did a big piece uh, on that, uh, kind of the growing gender gap uh, among late-wave millennials. These are people basically in their 20s, uh, and we see it growing, uh, in fact, dramatically growing. Uh, So it's much larger than older age brackets. I think when you think of gender gap, we think of something about boomers, you you know, old feminists against old traditionalists. No, the biggest gap between genders now is among people in their early twenties. Uh, you see it on college campuses, and increasingly showing up in the polls. Um, uh, huge, and by the way, it's not just in the United States; uh, we see it in we see it in Germany, we see it in Korea, we see it in China, we see it around the world now. Uh, sort of like the 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 bonds of sort of comedy and and politeness, and uh, you know. Getting along, even if you if you think of yourself as different people, you sort of have rules for for getting along with each other. Uh, these are beginning to break down. Uh and so this is disturbing. Uh how is it linked to the current political mood in America? Uh, where is it going? Uh, and why is it global? Uh, we explore this. I'll be doing, you know, I did that uh on a piece that came out yesterday and a piece I'll be doing again uh, in my next column.
2: Well, gentlemen, um, I, I'd like to uh, I'd like to leave with a parting thought from from both of you. Uh, let's all mo- let's mark our calendars for six months from now, and meet back here. What do you think we'll be talking about in six months? JT, you go first.
0: Uh, you know, I think we're going to be as we as people focus start to focus on the election. I think some are focused right now. I think it's going to come down to. We said it a couple of minutes ago. Where the economy is in six months, what's happened on immigration, and it, and of course foreign affairs. Uh, you don't underestimate what's happening with uh, uh, in the Middle East with Gaza and what's that what that's doing to some of the younger voters uh, with regard to their um, uh, opinions of, of of Biden and in the Biden administration. And then um, uh, don't underestimate abortion as well. Uh, that that issue is going to be uh, uh, front and center six months from now, as well as the other four. So I think depending on where we are, not a short list, and they're all pretty significant issues, but we're going to be visiting, and I think people will focus much more on where we are on the economy in six months, and I think that's going to drive the decision at the ballot box. And again, there is a, a distaste for both of these candidates. So I would not be surprised if we're talking about a third candidate a third-party candidate in six months as well.
2: Neil? Yeah.
3: I, I would just say on the third-party candidacy, it's either no one's talking about it or everyone will be talking about it. In other words, it's going to be a threshold of critical mass. So either it really becomes viable or everyone will regard it as just a, you know, a fatal, uh, probably a fatal arrow in Biden's side. The other issue is the economy. If the economy starts really deteriorating again, that's going to be a problem for Biden. I agree with JT on issues. Uh, uh, Abortion is the one good issue for Biden. He definitely has a plurality, particularly among those young women I was talking about, right? So they're huge on that issue. Unfortunately for Biden, uh, what most voters care about, even younger voters, is the economy and increasingly national security and uh, new topics like immigration. And unfortunately for Biden, Trump has a big lead in that. Particularly, completely undeserved. I mean, I don't know if you've read the latest uh, Paul Krugman vibe session memo, but <laughs> completely undeserved. But the public trusts Trump much more with the state of the economy. Apparently, they have good memories of what happened back in the late 20 uh, teens, and, uh, and 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 just he has a huge margin in every poll that I've seen. and
0: I agree. Just real quick, I do agree with Neil. By the springtime, we'll know whether or not there's a third party. So in six months, it could be moot or it could be the t- hottest topic of the day. But we'll know in the springtime, I predict.
2: Well, I, you know, I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I'm going to leave uh, with my own few thoughts uh, today. And that is that we should all remember that it, it takes kindling to start a fire. And the $2,000 third, s- excuse me, second stimulus check Uh, that Trump insisted on getting, he did not get. He only got 600 of those $2,000. And the first order of business when Biden got into office was to get the $1,400 balance. And then we really saw what inflation could do uh, running up to the double digits. I do think that inflation will be very problematic given how very little it looks like Congress is going to change in terms of its leadership and these razor thin margins uh, of majority going forward. That means that the vice presidential candidate, whomever they are, whichever party they're, they're going to play a critical role as well. Uh, But uh, I I will leave you with this one quick story that um, a very young pastor uh, who actually passed away at the young age of 44 this last year, uh, told the congregation before the last election. And that was, you can talk about politics all you want but only if you vote. So remember in this voting year to pay attention. Don't just turn off the TV. Don't stop reading the headlines. Do your own homework. Be prepared and understand that you get a voice in this debate if and only if you do your duty and get out and vote on election day. This is Danielle DiMartino Booze, and I would like to thank both JT and Neil. This has been fantastic. And I look forward uh, to the next deep dive that we take together. Live from Hedgeye, signing out. Thank you.
5: Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable, Hedgeye is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the contents. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws as intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the Terms of Service at hege.com slash Terms of Service.